Welcome to this first episode of the podcast of the Culture and Inequality course. Uh, my name is Gieselinde Kuipers. I'm a professor of sociology at the KU Leuven in Belgium. And I'm presenting this first episode of the podcast with Luc Brans. Welcome, Luc. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Um, so what we have in mind in doing this, so the idea for this podcast actually came about during the global uh, COVID pandemic when everybody moved online with their teaching. Uh, and even though much of this online teaching has been a trying experience both for students and for teachers and lecturers, uh, it also opened up one new possibility, which is that distances didn't really matter anymore as much. So what we can do now is teach together with professors from countries around the world and also to students and other interested people from around the world as well. Uh, so this is also an experiment in a way in teaching globally a theme that many social scientists around the world have been addressing, which is the relation between culture and inequality. Uh, so we're starting with podcasts of about an hour where usually two academics are discussing some readings and a core theme in culture and inequality. Uh, and then after that, we also give some suggestions for readings. We have some assignments. Uh, so this is meant for a wide range of people in any sort of social science interested in culture and inequality, but specifically for advanced students. Um, so this is the first episode. So it's an experiment also for us. So please bear with yes. us. Um, <laughs> and let us first start by introducing us, the first speaker. So Luke, welcome. Can you explain something of where you come from and what brings you here? Yeah. I'm uh, I'm um, I'm Luc Brans. I'm a PhD candidate at the KU Leuven. Uh, I studied uh, cultural sociology and political science at the University of Amsterdam and the University of Edinburgh. And I started my PhD this year, and I'm looking at the politicization of culture uh, broadly and specifically uh, in the fields of fashion and uh, food. I'm very happy to to join this course, and actually, I'm sort of the student voice. That's my role here, um, and it's good for me also to um, reread the core texts of the discipline again because that has been a while. I would have to say, and also to be a student again because that's also been a while now. Um, so it's it's fun to be back in this role again. So yeah. Yes, so, and I'm Gieselinde Kuipers. I'm a sociologist. I am Dutch, like Luc, but we both work in Belgium, uh, also fairly recently. Yeah. Um, so I have studied various forms of culture and inequality ever since my PhD, which was about social differences in sense of humor, so why different people like find different things funny. And this turned out to be something that is very much related to social inequality in the sense that around the world, and especially in Europe and the US, sense of humor is very much linked to class, but also ethnicity, age and gender. And these are, of course, uh, social distinctions that are also related to status. So we will talk about this humor thing a bit at the end of this podcast. I've also done research on television, on media, on beauty, on globalization. So all things that I like to say that people think of as frivolous, so not serious and nice and fun and 
uh, something that is not really directly connected to big issues like inequality and social problems, but in these sort of fun, frivolous issues, I think it's you can show how um, social divisions and social divides are reproduced while people are engaging in fun, frivolous things like joking or watching TV shows or things like this. And this is exactly also the course, the theme of this course, because also in this course we're looking at things that are um, considered not immediately serious or political like music or like TV shows or like um, artistic preferences and these things have been shown to be really important in reproducing all sorts of inequalities especially class but also age, gender, nationality, ethnicity, age um, so now I'm losing track of the different <laughs> sets. <laughs> so the they're connected actions. to yeah. different sorts of inequalities. And this is the thing that sociologists and social scientists have been study, studying for a long time, of course, because inequality is something that's really created by social structures and that has very real effects on people's lives and on their life chances. And it's actually very difficult to grasp how this happens because we're all, you know, born the same <laughs> equally. But because of the society that we're born in and the social position that we're born in, we are finding ourselves at very advantaged or disadvantaged positions. And this is very often it's created by these sort of cultural practices and things and tastes that feel very close to us, like what you find funny or what you find beautiful, but at the same time uh, that have very, very strong impact on how you can relate to people. So it's very difficult to to relate to people who doesn't share your sense of humor. And we know that this is related to class. It's very difficult to establish a relationship with people who have a wrong taste in dress or clothing or who have uh, a very a hairstyle that upsets you or that you don't like. While at the same time, we know that these sorts of tastes are also related to social background. So, Luke, I would like to ask you, do you have maybe... A personal experience of these sort of cultural divides or distinctive processes? So I thought about this a little bit, but uh, the thing is, um, in my experience, this got worse over time in the sense that as I climbed the educational ladder, mm -hmm. I found more and more that my cultural tastes were excluding others and vice versa. But my very first, um, my very first uh, experience of this is when I went from elementary school to high school. And so I was born in the north of Amsterdam, which is a, well, back then used to be like a very mixed uh, neighborhood. And I went to an high school here in the center of Amsterdam, which is quite, yeah, a classical gymnasium elitist high school. So with my middle-class background, I came there and all of a sudden people every winter were talking about going on winter sports and, and skiing. And in the summer, they would sail uh, um, on the Frisian lakes in the north of Holland. And I had no experience with either of these two things. And when I was young, we simply played football and I even did athletics for a little bit. But like uh, skiing was too expensive for my parents and also not their interest. Uh, neither was sailing because sailing and boats were also considered to be a little bit for people posher than us. Uh, so I felt a little bit out of place whenever these conversations in school were about these matters. So that's perhaps one way in which I felt this. But I have to say that my experience is necessarily quite privileged in the sense that I come from a middle class background. So I would have to say that 
people uh, from a different background might have much stronger and more painful experiences than simply not being able to talk about sailing boats or going skiing in the Alps in the winter. So it's quite a privileged privileged experience of exclusion to have, I would say. Yeah. So do you also have experiences from the other end? So you feeling, are you looking down upon other, pe other people's tastes? Yeah, so this has gotten worse over the years, I would say. <laughs> so, um, yes, so, um, and my friends notice, like, we um, we usually, so we have this, in my friend group, we have this thing where we talk about middle, mid-Nederland, which means middle Netherlands, something which is similar to middle America. Uh, and then it's sort of a denouncing term to refer to all things uh, suburban people like in the Netherlands. And this is something that I have with my friend group that I, f that I have from university. So this is something that's sort of like, oh, you know, these people who, who actually, um, I actually don't know, I can't, I can't think of a thing here to say without sounding very, very classist. No, um, so this is because um, I think the first step is that you have to, if you don't understand, if you don't sort of understand this about yourself and face these sort of uh, then it's also really difficult to analyze it in others. It's yeah, so experience. basically we refer to these people as, you know, people who go to blockbuster movies, uh, but don't experience the deeper thing, the deeper meaning of the blockbuster film. Uh, people who uh, have a lease, have a, have a, uh, a lease, get a lease car from their, from their jobs and people who spend most of their time in traffic commuting, um, people who uh, generally... You know, when it comes to food, for instance, they like avocados now, which is, of course, something <laughs> that uh, or they like certain cocktails such as gin tonic, which we haven't we, we don't don't drink this anymore. Or they, you know, so it's also experienced in uh, expressed in the way these people eat and drink and dress. Um, so it's typically like the, the distinction patterns you would see in like a, a, a middle class suburban town in the Netherlands. And we look down upon that implicitly. Never explicitly, because we're brought up to be nice and open. And whenever you meet these people, you're open. But like between ourselves, we're quite, yeah, quite harsh about this. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. So in Bourdieu's terms, how would you describe the sort of class boundaries that you just managed? So you had two different um, relations or class juxtapositions. Yeah. So this was clearly... Uh, a boundary of, of a cultural boundary uh, of cultural capital, uh, which is also tied to to more uh, economic capital, of course, because it's not because part of the reason my parents didn't uh, put us on sailing summer schools and didn't go skiing is because I'm from a rather large family. My parents had four children together. So it was simply out of reach for us. But it's so there's a, there's a both an economic capital and cultural capital yeah. boundaries. Let's say yeah. That's if what I mean, as as a, as a cultural sociologist, with I would say well, this is it's actually the opposition between people with more cultural capital and people with more economic capital in the Netherlands. So yeah. economic capital is is denoted by a specific set of so this is actually the classical distinction within the within the middle classes between people with more cultural capital and people with more economic capital, uh, and that actually this is also as I read it precisely what you um, what you describe in your your friends and you talking about <laughs> uh, the the middle Dutch suburban people because that is actually you flaunting your cultural capital 
Uh, it is, so when, yes, yeah. because, yeah, these people usually are also have a better wage than we do. Uh, and they're, they're, they're richer than we do, usually. I mean, uh, me and my friends are these, you know, more these, these, these um, urban kind of highly educated academics. Uh, but we, we can't afford a home. But these people can actually and can afford a family. So their economic capital is necessarily larger than ours. Yeah. Yes. So it's interesting that, uh, so we need to wrap up this. It's interesting. This is also <laughs> in many, in many discussions of, of distinction. It's really about distinctions between people who more or less have the same position. So this is actually what you're talking about is the middle class versus the middle class. And what's really missing from your account is any uh, relation between middle classes and lower classes, whereas or less educated people or working class people, whereas usually this is where the where the biggest distinctions and the realist consequences are. Uh, but yeah. it's also probably more painful and more complicated to think about. And just a final experience for me, because for me, this was actually when I was doing my PhD, which is what I'm one of the papers that we discussed for today is about is that was actually the first time when I started interviewing joke tellers that I had very extensive long conversations with people of of uh, working class or lower middle class backgrounds. And just that, I mean, in the Netherlands, which believes itself to be an egalitarian country, and this is for most Western countries, that was a very shocking experience for me that that I realized that this was a whole group of people that I had uh, very, very little contact with. And this is actually where cultural differences were really big because these are people where I really felt, you know, my, my, my sense of humor often was very different from them. So they had a very different understanding of what was funny. Uh, but it was also a, a wake-up moment in the sense that cultural dis differences, even within a tiny homogeneous country, can be really big. And these are the differences that are very often not played out as much because we find them painful and a little embarrassing. So we can joke about people with within the middle class. But I could never, you know, it would be very, very difficult and painful to to write about, to talk about this in the same way of people who are really in a different mostly more disadvantaged position. Can I respond to that briefly? So, and that's probably something we will return to later when discussing Bourdieu, but in my experience also this relation to the working class or uh, lower economic classes, social economic classes. When I grew up, I used to share a lot of in North, we went to the same football club with people from those backgrounds. Uh, and I actually had friends with people from those backgrounds. And this entire, this was entirely it got worse the, the higher I came on the educational ladder. So that's, there's a sort of, uh, this is also the function of education. And I think this is will, something we will return to later when we're speaking budget to also sort of wipe out this diversity. So all of a sudden among in the university you're only among other middle-class people. Whereas in elementary school, I, you know, we, if I only think about the flats and the places my friends lived in back then, it was so much more diverse uh, than, than it is now. So it's also an educational thing, right? Okay, yeah. So this is actually exactly the themes we are talking about. So this is about how we judge and include and exclude people on the basis of cultural practices, like what sports they do, what they eat, how they dress, how they talk, what they laugh about. And even a very brief discussion like this also shows that 
This is linked to inequalities, some of which are, are made explicit and that we, that we sort of perform and play out actively, others that we are aware of but that we try to avoid. Uh, but cultural and social inequalities are really embedded in cultural practices and, and in artifacts. And these cultural tastes and practices and objects, but also larger fields and institutions are entangled with such sort of social inequality. So it's class, but also gender, age, ethnicity, race, region, nationality. So many different things are in the cultural objects, but also in the cultural practices. And as a member of a society, we can pick this up. And this is a large element, a large part of how social inequalities are reproduced. Uh, so, to discuss this, and we now come to the second part, so this was the introduction, to discuss this, we will look in the first episode of this podcast at a number of classic readings in the study of culture and inequality, and also one more concrete study that I have done to make this a little more concrete, because the classic readings tend to be a little abstract. So, we're for the yes, readings, we right. have uh, two texts by Bourdieu, who is actually within sociology, the person who has put this on the map and who's pretty much established the field of cultural sociology. Uh, also, Stuart Hall, who worked around the same time and who has uh, also around the same themes, but this has spawned really another field or another discipline, which is now known as cultural studies. Uh, Michel Lamont, who is originally... Um, a student of Pierre Bourdieu, but who criticized him quite strongly and now is one of the main figures in American cultural sociology. And then there is my own paper, which is really intent to, to make this more concrete by showing how this works in a medium like television, so in a lowbrow media. There's documentary too, right? And then there is, yeah, there, and there are also, exactly, there are also uh, <laughs> one documentary about Bourdieu, a, a shorter lecture by Stuart Hall and a very, very brief clip of Michel Lamont to also give you a sense of who these people are and and what drives them, because I think that is very relevant with these people. So Luke, having looked at this, and in some cases, again, what sort of commonalities struck you in these uh, readings? Um, I found the reading sometimes a little bit to be a little bit difficult. Um, especially Bourdieu's text, and, but Hall also wasn't very easy. It, it's easier when you're reading actually the more empirical uh, contributions by you and Lamont. Um, the thing that sort of um, that connects them in my in my view is they're, that they're trying to grapple with this inequality uh, thing and also misunderstandings between people or how people are not on the same wavelength, so to say. Um, you see this with Hall when he talks about encoding and decoding and how sometimes this goes wrong and he tries to get the finger by why this goes wrong. But there's also very strongly in all these texts a sense of domination and some people, and that's less so perhaps with the text written by yourself, but there's also, uh, they all talk about how some groups dominate others and how this is expressed. So you see this with Michelle Lamont when she talks about how this is expressed maybe by boundary making, although she makes very clear that it doesn't necessarily have to be a dominating perspective, but it can be. But for Pierre Bourdieu and for Stuart Hall, they are both so much centered on this idea of uh, domination. So that's what 
for me was a general um, general uh, theme. How did it feel for you to reread Bourdieu again? Yeah, it it brought me back to the first time I read Bourdieu. And it was actually in the Dutch translation, so it was easier. But um, it's easier now because I know what I have to read in it. So I know what it's about. But for the first time, it's very difficult. And I can imagine that you want to read it twice or perhaps even three times. And even read some read some Wikipedia next to it. And the same goes for Hall. Also get some background information online about this encoding-decoding model before you start to read the... That, that usually works a lot. So why is it so difficult? Can you try to explain what is the what makes it hard? So Bourget is difficult because the linguistically difficult, I would say, because his sentences are a little bit circular. Sometimes I think you, the way he writes, he's is is very different than what you're used to when you're reading academic or British or let's say Anglo-Saxon academic articles mostly. Uh, so that makes it difficult. Um, for Hall, what makes it difficult is that you have to notice that this is based on well, there's references to I think a semiotic approach. Uh, and you have to take that into account when you're reading this, this um, because it talks about signifier and signif- signifying and signified, uh, etc. And if you're not used to this kind of terminology, that may put you a little bit uh, out of field, I think. So what do you do when you run into terms that you don't recognize? Google. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's this, uh, yeah, some, when I run into terms that I don't recognize either just dictionary, um, sometimes uh, very ordinary Wikipedia, but also I have this Oxford Dictionary of Sociology on my desk that I sort of use that gives a very short but brief but very, yeah, uh, academic definition of a sociological term. Uh, so there's that. And I sometimes, even if I'm entirely lost, I return to my bachelor, the books I used during the, my bachelor in sociology and uh, and just look it up there. And this is Sociological Theory by Ritzer. Those kind of uh, textbooks, you know, are also helpful. And you probably have them laying around if you did a bachelor. Uh, so it's interesting. So this probably also betrays my age as a as a pre-internet pre-Wikipedia. So my my advice usually, if you if you run into a term that you can place, is just to soldier on for a bit, and usually it becomes clear <laughs> after a few pages. But you're probably right at looking something up. Also, might be a good way, but maybe not everything. So it's also no 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 yeah. no no. This, this soldiering on is something I do, but when it returns the term and it returns in such a way that, that you completely lose track, then yes, indeed, then I, then I, then I, yeah, <laughs> then yeah. I look it up. Yeah. Yeah. So because both for, I think this is both for Hall and for Bourdieu. So Bourdieu actually has developed his own set of concepts that have become very influential. So you really need to get used to them because they will return in many ways. For Hall, he also developed some concepts, but indeed he leans very strongly on semiotics and uh, also Marxist terminology, uh, like uh, uh, means of production. Um, So it helps to try and sort of put into words what they try to do with it. And indeed, mostly Wikipedia explains it much better than the authors do themselves these days. English Wikipedia, I have to say. Yes, I think the, the central theme, and I think this is a word, that I think even the word domination tends to sort of uh, uh, scare people off or because it sounds so 
strong, but I think the, the original intent of the study of culture and inequality as it emerged around the 1970s was really saying culture is a form of domination, specifically uh, elite culture or highbrow culture or culture is maybe a tool of the elites in a sort of uh, dramatic way of putting it, but it's power relations, societal relations of domination are embedded in culture, for instance, in the highbrow culture that Bourdieu describes, but also in the sort of more uh, middlebrow culture like media systems that hold. So the first question that it started with, how is culture used by people with more power to dominate people with less power? And this very strong, very dramatic formulation has been modified a bit over the years, and this is what we will see if we continue to the next episodes, because it seems a bit strong and also a bit Marxist, and of course the Marxist truths are really clear there, uh, but in, in all cases, and I think that has to do also with the sort of moment when, these, when this field started, because although Bourdieu and Hall are very different in many respects, uh, what they share is a common experience of coming from outside of a still fairly exclusive uh, academia, entering into this and trying to understand the surroundings there. So Bourdieu was, he came from uh, the, the outskirts of France, close to the Pyrenees, very far from Paris, uh, from a, a, a family where going to university was not normal, and Stuart Hall uh, came from Jamaica even to Oxford, also to uh, a very sort of elitist university, and both of them also tried to grapple with the, the cultural experience of this basically upward or inward mobility to the elites, and in these elites it was of course all sorts of cultural styles that that separated these elites from the rest of society. So many cultural, so ways of talking, ways of appreciating art, ways of doing things is very much how, how also academic uh, elites reproduce themselves. So this is also, an, in a moment like the 1970s, a very strong mobility and a very strong moment where the sort of old standards have been challenged. This was actually the moment that people started focusing on culture as a way of of keeping these inequalities in place. So there's also a historical moment there. So it has to do with the democratization of higher education in these countries. Yeah, right? so, so it has to do with democratization. Yes, yes. So and this again is is related to a much larger shift in in uh, European and American society in these periods when I mean, the democratization of education also has to do with the larger shift where, you know, the working classes and the lower middle classes gained more power, moved upwards. And this is when this, so it starts from a combination of critique and political struggle and uh, scholarly reflection on this. And this is interesting. Mm. So it's also, it's at the same time, and this is also still what you see, it's at the same time, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a challenge to these sort of cultural systems that keep hierarchies intact and that are used to dominate, and it's an attempt to understand it. So it starts, even though that's not so, it starts with a critical impetus. Uh, but so, but this critical impetus is founded mostly on their own personal experience. Well, not exactly, but I, so it's it's very difficult to psychologize, right? 
it's very <laughs> tempting, especially if you look at this or you're not sure. But but it seems very clear that in this that in the that in the things that social scientists in the 1970s liked, you can see and that they were cared about that this is also related to a personal experience where academia and societies changed very quickly. So yeah. the question: How does it happen that that some groups stay in power? Yeah, How okay. do they manage? Why have they managed to stay in power for such a long time? Why is it so difficult to change this? Why is it so difficult for people who haven't grown up in in high status families to enter these places? And this is a this I think this is a real question that I think that we can still ask today. So why is it so difficult for people who don't come from university families or high to to thrive and to feel at home in universities? Why is it so difficult for some people to work in specific circumstances? And again, I think today the question also applies to people with a migration background in most of Europe. So why is it so difficult for people who haven't, who have maybe grandparents or great grandparents? Is it still very difficult for them to feel at home in many of the dominant institutions and fields? And very often it has to do with with culture, with tastes and practices as they are played out in interactions, but also as they are embedded in institutions, which is what Hall shows. Right, but can I play the Marxist card? Because I feel this is quite important for like, when approaching the entire discipline of cultural sociology is, wouldn't like uh, more Marxist inclined thinkers just say like, well, you're actually focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on this culture, but basically that's just an expression or reflection of how the economic uh, means of production are distributed in society. So it's fun and you're looking at these frivolous things, but the serious consequences are are produced by the economic uh, setup of society, not the cultural setup of society. That's just the expression of this. But what would, I, I know you don't agree with this, and I don't agree <laughs> yeah. with this either, but I, I can hear some listeners think this. So what would you say to them? It's a very very good question. I think even within the field of cultural sociology and in sociology more widely, I think there are two different perspectives on this. I think one is, and I think especially in whole, this is what you see very clearly is um, culture is maybe primarily an expression of this, but it's a very important part of this economic process. So because culture is also embedded, as Hall uh, describes, it's also embedded in in television production or media production. Mm-hmm. So that's why cultural studies has always looked at the at the the institutional structures. So if you read Hall, you see that he really starts from communication systems and media systems and the way that all sorts of dominant perspectives and power relations are sort of encoded ideologies, he calls it, ideologies are encoded into TV and cultural productions and also in popular culture, and this is how it works. So then, indeed, culture becomes a reflection of the interests and ideologies of specific groups and not of others. Uh, And Hall's response, interestingly, is to look at possibilities for resistance among audiences. So this is actually, so there what you do is you look at how uh, power is embedded in all sorts of cultural systems. So that is, of course, economic power. But then you look, so what sort of possibilities are there for people to sort of uh, own this, to change this, to see this in different ways? So this is within the sort of 
neo-Marxist framework or something like that, but it shows that culture can both be a tool of domination and a form of resistance. So it can be a battleground. So it is a battleground. So for, for Hall and for, for British cultural studies, culture is a battleground. And that means that in British cultural studies, uh, people have traditionally looked at lowbrow culture. So they looked mm-hmm. at popular culture. They have uh, taken a lot of time to really interview people about their TV habits and about how they read romance novels. So they really have looked at traditional lowbrow forms. Uh, and many of them have argued, interestingly, that actually in these lowbrow forms, because they're more open-ended, that there might be more room for resistance and for different interpretations there than there is in more traditional highbrow forms. So that's the whole uh, solution. So that's also something that we see it until today in cultural studies. And then there is the sort of more cultural sociological that really says no, it's not a form of Marxism because because the production happens in fields that are more independent. So there's not this one sort of dominant scheme or one dominant class, but instead there are different sets of struggles about culture that happens in many different places. So culture is still a battleground. So this right. is also with Bourdieu and also with post-Bourdieusians, you see that culture is still a battleground, but it's an autonomous battleground that is not a simple reflection of economic structures and means of production. So it really makes sense to think of culture as something that is autonomous, that has its own logic. And this is reflected in Bourdieu's insistence that there are different forms of capital. So there's economic capital and there is cultural capital and there is also social and symbolic capital. And they have their own logics and their own uh, workings and their own struggles and they can be converted, but not immediately. So culture is, in a sense, uh, can be reduced to economics. And I think this is what all of the authors that we will read for this course will say in the end, culture is cannot be reduced to something else. It is a real, real force, uh, also because it is so it feels so close to people's real self. So it's a very it's a very um, it really becomes embedded in the habitus of this for Bourdieu gives you a moment to really to make it you know to make it your own to sort of um, make people sort of embody their social position uh, whereas for people like Hall it's more like a way that it also it makes people embody their social position but it also gives them the starting point for for uh, reinterpreting it in ways that uh, allow them to to rebel to resist yeah to be to, to resist the domination. Yeah, of to resist the domination. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you want to discuss the, uh, the readings now, but there is one more thing I would like to ask you about this, yeah. if that's okay. Sure. So that, uh, this is also something that's reflected in a documentary, is that for the for Bourget, and it also sounds for Hall as well, there's this strong impetus that the sociologist is descri- must describe this domination, must describe this inequality, but in a way also stimulate resistance against this inequality uh, you see this when and and there's this interesting thing in the documentary where Bourdieu says like well no sociology is a martial art in the sense that you only use it in self-defense so you never use it on the attack but the rest of the documentary or like in parts of the documentary he's actually on the attack he goes to places and he says like well neoliberalism and this is 
2000, 2001, something like that. It's out to dominate us and we should do something about this and we should resist. So there's this strong sense of we have to resist this. Um, and so my question is rather, so where is the boundary here between the scholarly describing things and the more activist prescribing things? It's a... Or is this a... Is this a yeah. No, it's a good question because it's interesting because I think even with... So you see with, with Bourdieu and with Hall that there is also a critical impulse there very clearly. And even with Michel Lamont, which is even more interesting because she is an American sociology where which is usually trying to not to be very critical. And actually in the past few years, she, she has become much more critical and much more vocal uh, in this. So... Uh, I think it's very, it's very, very difficult to think about inequalities and to not also care about it personally uh, and to see the injustice in it. In some cases, I think, especially with the sort of early, like the, the beginners of the field, like, like Bourdieu, but also like Hall and the cultural studies people, it also, it, I mean, it springs from a critical impulse and from a sense that that culture is used to dominate uh, and that, well, the first thing you could do is try to interrogate it and to try to understand how this uh, works. So the first step is if you study something, if you research it, then that already is a form of of yeah. social Resistance. engagement. Yeah. So that would be yeah. one way, because what you can do is you can show people how it works. You can help people, you know, open their eyes, understand how society works. So the, the, I think this is a very strong motivation for many people in sociology, that if you want to do something about it, you first have to understand it and you have to help people, other people understand it. So you have to help people to reflect about their own position in society and that will be a first step to maybe changing things. But, but even making people think about this already is a form of engagement. Uh, but I think also... In, often you see that people at some point start to wonder if this is enough. Uh, and so interestingly, even though Hall started off very critically, I think he, he was less critical and never became an activist like Bourdieu. Instead, what Hall did was he became very active in the British Open University. And that was a rather nice and wonderful institution where, where they really produced TV shows and uh, yeah, something very much like MOOCs uh, already in the 1980s. So courses for everybody to see as a way to educate the publics. So that's, of course, one way to do it, to spread your knowledge as widely as possible. But as you see in the documentary, Bourdieu have towards the end become really much more radical. Um, and... Uh, yeah, he says, I think as a martial art, I think he would he would say probably that society started the fight and he's just fighting back. So right. so, they, so he would say, well, you know, they've been they've been attacking us. So it's time yeah. to uh, do something about this. Yeah, because the, 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 the final bit he says in the documentary is something like uh, because he's then in a banlieue at some sort of social center and there's a very heated discussion. And this is really why I would recommend people to watch the entire documentary because the last 25 minutes are really good. Uh, and he says like something like, 
well, now they're burning cars and the police comes, but we have to give them a reason to burn cars or something. Or they have to burn the cars and then do something. So there's really this 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 uh, this advice for, for activism, I would say. This really this strong urge. Yeah, it's really, it's actually what it ends with. It's a town hall meeting in a banlieue, so, right. a, so a suburb with uh, mostly immigrant people yeah. uh, who are um, probably not very powerful, not very influential, also not very rich. And he, he Bourdieu speaks to these people, and there is there is one person that he talks to a lot who is a very vocal speaker. Uh, and very it's, and it's really, it's more like a political town hall meeting where it's organizing the resistance and then at the same time, you see him in the in the Collège de France, and you see him, and he is uh, teaching a course on Manet, which is um, uh, <laughs> a nineteenth-century painter, and he's sitting behind a desk, and he's showing these images of these paintings. So he he is sort of he tried to combine both sort of the really art sociology with the really activism, um, which is an interesting take. What I think is interesting is that that as I said, that Lamont is is moving in the same direction. So I saw her a couple of years ago uh, in the, at the, when she was awarded the Erasmus Prize, which is a really big prize in front of the Dutch king and queen. And then she took the stage to also to attack Trump as someone who is, she called him the great divider and someone who is actively um, stirring or activating or increasing boundary drawing. So, so the so she really connected it to the perspective that she has, where uh, social and symbolic boundaries are at the at the heart of this process. So she was very critical of this idea that that culture is all about domination. So this is really the heart of her critique: is that culture can be related to all sorts of boundary drawing, but it doesn't have to be. Um, hierarchical and it doesn't have to be a form of domination but at the same time if you keep sort of very strictly marking boundaries in society you are of course contributing to the breaking up of society uh, if you make it too strong and she attacked Trump really interestingly in front of the Dutch well the Dutch elite basically very vocally and very sort of yeah in a very engaged way for the same reason that you said what this does is really it's the it's the um the 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 increasing the actively increasing of cleavages in society which will destabilize society so she also used her own perspective but in a different way saying that even if cultural divisions are not necessarily hierarchical about domination still cultural divisions can be really um harmful if they are too large and they can be used and manipulate to pit people against each other. And you can use these feelings of belonging and these pre- cultural practices, you can use them to sort of uh, show, to drive people apart. And this is actually something that today is maybe even easier than it was before because the media landscape is so fragmented. Yeah, so this yeah, so this also tells us something about the way society and the world has changed since most of these readings were written. Uh because Lamont also describes I think at one point how uh class is an important divider in the US and some other d- things aren't necessarily well they they divide but they aren't thick boundaries in the sense that they are are, are 
boundaries are around which there's conflict or domination. And I think she specifically, but I may be wrong, refers to race uh, at one point. And I was reading this and I thought like, yeah, this is, you can tell that this is written 30 years ago because nowadays this is dated in the sense that it's not dated, but it's it's not true anymore for the US that it's not about race. So um, it's this is also, of course, an interesting development that you see people that are actually in the business of making these boundaries stronger yeah uh, yeah so but, these yeah. so the, there are people so these boundaries can be manipulated and they can be made stronger and they can be weakened and i think the so when lamont wrote her book this is a book from 1992 that we're reading the yeah. conclusion of it's called money morals and manners so it's already 30 years old uh and then she she what she did she compared Boundary drawing, as she called it in France and in the U.S., among upper middle class people. And so, as I said, she was a student of Bourdieu, but she tried to step away from him in several ways. So one is by saying that um, there are really very, very strong national differences in how these systems of um, cultural inequality and cultural boundary drawing work. So they operate different, operate differently in different places. And Bourdieu really was talking very much about 1960s, 1970s France. And the British cultural studies people were talking very much about the UK in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, where it really, really was about uh, class in a very specific, rather centralized, fixed national setting. And at the time when Lamont wrote it, she looked at the U.S. and she said, well, it's interesting in the U.S. actually the boundaries are not as strong. So the boundary mm. drawing is not as strong as it is in these European nation states. It's more open. There is more flexibility. <laughs> and also, interestingly, she said, so it's much less about class. It's still about class, but not. it's not as pronounced as in France. It's also probably not as pronounced as in other European countries. Uh, so we have a slightly more open society where uh, there is not this strongly sort of system of these sort of stacked classes with one is higher and then one is lower, but instead it's more diverse. And that allowed her to make the argument that it's that cultural inequalities um, can be more segmented, more horizontal rather than vertical, and that there is more openness in the U.S. Um, and that was that's true. And also theoretically, that's an important argument that you can have very different sorts of uh, underlying social systems that somehow are expressed in cultural boundaries with different boundary strength and different boundaries types. And what is what Lamont showed is that even though what Bourdieu said, it's really all about culture and it's the, the upper middle classes, they do it in taste and they are, it's about books and about, about wine and about sports and about clothing and about art and paintings and music and all of these. Uh, and then Lamont showed that in the US, it wasn't that much about paintings and books and uh, clothing and all these things, but it was much more about also about economic boundaries, which unlike France, don't have to be obfuscated as much. So much of the cultural boundary drawing in France is also about trying to uh, deny that it's about economics. And I think this is also something that I saw in your uh, your examples, 
Of course, when you were talking about the sailing and the boating people and the suburban people, this is so. This is about people who are, you know, the, the sailing people were probably wealthier than you. But this is not something that you say. It's not something singled. But instead, in Europe, we sort of we call this or we convert it to culture because it, then it seems less nasty. Well, in the U.S., it's more about economics, and it's also interesting. It's more about moral boundaries. So Americans don't really look down as much. About, or at least Lamont's Americans don't look down as much on people if they don't know who a classical composer is or um, if they can't recognize paintings. But what is important is that they uh, that you have to be a good person. So that you so yes. morality. So and if you're a bad person and if you're sort of morally wrong, that is a much stronger way of making this distinction. Uh, so this is what. Lamont tried to argue, but of course, uh, this is 30 years ago, and now many of these things seem uh, have changed in the sense that uh, she said it's more about class than we think in the U.S., and race is maybe not so important, and she actually also changed her mind about that. So she has become much more attuned to issues of race as we will see, because next week we'll have a paper by her, which is really about racialization. And she also has, so in a sense, she has been acute, more acutely aware. I think this is also something that has happened in Europe, too. I think we have become much more aware of race and ethnicity as elements of the stratification system. And for a long time, they were sort of uh, classified under the header of class. Uh, but I don't think that is feasible anymore. I think we really have to understand that ethnicity and even race in the sense of physical uh, traits are are independent of, of, of class can be used as as forms of boundary drawing and are implicated in in such cleavages. Yeah, I, I agree. But I and I think it's an interesting point because it also points to the intersectionality of these things. But I want to ask a little bit more just for clarity's sake, about the morality uh, bit. So Lamont says, okay, you can draw boundaries in a socioeconomic way. So I have more money than you, so I'm better than yeah. you. In a cultural way, I know my Mozart and my Chopin, for, uh, yeah. and you don't. So, okay, this is very crude. Uh, but the morality, so what is the... So the morality is still sort of... It's it's not entirely clear to me. So, what kind of morality, moral values are we talking about? So, because I give money. I give money to charity, so I'm better than you. Right. Uh, I go to right. church, so I'm better than you. I I all. take care of my elderly parents, so I'm better than you. Okay. I'm politically active, so I'm better than you. I'm so religiosity is also comes into it. Right. Yeah, uh, so there are many say. ways in which you can feel superior to people because you feel you are you are doing good in the world. So I don't steal. I don't cheat. I yeah. don't. Uh, well, yeah, but also I mean, if you look at present day discussion, so I'm I'm an activist. I'm standing up for you know minorities in my society. <laughs> I I don't yeah. use specific words because I don't want to hurt people. I mean, all of this is you know, in the in the Europe in the Dutch case, I think the the discussion about black peat is very interesting. So I'm against black peat because this signals that I'm better than you because you still believe in this. I think this is uh, 
So there are many different yeah. ways and also in sort of signaling your political affiliation as a form of superiority where you show you're different from others and you're better from others because you do certain things. But this okay. extends beyond the political, right? This is about the moral. Yeah, so, but I, th- I, think there, I think there is a slippage there easily, but mm-hmm. I think politics and morality, so for a long time, I think politics and morality were vaguely separated, but over the past 10 years, it's very difficult to distinguish politics and morality. <laughs> um, so, and less yeah. and less so. But this is, so these are the sort of boundaries that we're talking about. Uh, so we have discussed the, th- the, the three uh, big ones now. Yeah. So I I want to draw out one of the reasons that I'd like to use them before we move to the the closing off and also what inspired my own work here. Yeah. Uh so I think what is what is nice about these authors is also that even though they're all theorists as you can see so they offer big theoretical ideas, they offer big theoretical concepts is that they also they all theorize from empirical work. So what the the concepts they come up with, the insights, sort of models they built, they're all grounded in actual empirical observations. Um, So with whole, this comes from thinking about how media institutions work. So even though it doesn't really show in this paper, this is really about how people, what happens when people watch television, and specifically what happens when people who are not part of the traditional highbrow upper classes when they watch television. So how do they decode? So what sort of messages can they get from Mm -hmm. this, from, you know, watching the news, but also watching soaps or watching, I don't know, I think Coronation Street. I think many of these studies have really looked at, you know, traditional, not very prestigious TV to, to see what sort of messages are in there and also to, to try to figure out how people can sort of, uh, how they decode and understand, but also do different things with these messages. So you mm-hmm. can see it as, you can see the news as an ideological structure that tells you, you know, that some people are better than others or that the world is good as it is, but you can also use it to identify with different sorts of people. Um, so it really comes from comes from looking at very real and concrete everyday instances of culture, uh, and I think this is the same with with Bourdieu. So the, the the sort of funny graph that you always have with the sort of quadrants with the high and low economic, cultural capital, and capital volume. So this is about very mundane stuff. It's it's really about indeed do you like sailing or not, and what do you watch on TV, and what do you drink for dinner, and. Uh, what is your favorite hobby and uh, do you like this picture? So he also showed in his research, he showed pictures to people and asked them if this is beautiful. So a sunset and a painting and, and, he, and a gnarled women's hands. So to see how they would respond to it. So it's really a way of drawing out very everyday things. And I think this is one of the things that I've always appreciated, that it's really about the things that you see in your life. And they, these are the sort of starting points for theorizing. Uh, and this is also what I like very, very much about Lamont is that what she does is, I mean, she just goes to people's home and just says, well, you tell me, what do you think is a good person? And an enormous amount of empirical work yeah. also in her case, right? 160 people. Yeah. Uh, so, and she, yeah. And, yeah, she did the same afterwards. She did the same among a group of, uh, of working class men also in France and uh, the U.S., 
Uh, but it's, I mean, it's it's a it's about very mundane things. So it really shows about you know, how if you look if you start looking really really looking at people what what people do in their everyday life that you get to understand a lot about how society works. And and this is also what I did in my own research. So I also I talked to uh, almost seventy people in the Netherlands, asking them what they found funny, and I uh, did the same sort of Bourdieu graph. And then I discovered that even if you talk about, you know, comedians and TV comedies, that it's really about that there are really very significant differences in what people know and what they can appreciate. Uh, and that there is an element, so there's not only the element of the two different segments of the middle classes, but there is also for for people who are less educated, they actually were not able to understand what highbrow comedy was about. So they felt completely baffled. So there is an amount of knowledge in there. And you can find it just by, you know, talking to people. So you can understand how social inequality works by just, you know, asking them what people find funny. And I think this this combination of really sort of tangible empirical things and big big social discoveries is is what really has yeah makes this a very exciting interesting field every everyday things with serious consequences yes. right exactly. frivolous things with exactly. serious consequences yeah. i think your twitter bio says <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. um so can i ask some more just before we wrap up about your own study in the uh you were the, you were studying uh, humor culture uh, taste cultures in, in in the netherlands but there's an interesting twist here in the sense that okay so you already alluded to this that people who value lowbrow comedy or humor uh, don't actually understand or know highbrow comedy but there's is there domination there or isn't there it's a very good question um I think one of the points yeah. you're trying to make in the paper, but maybe I read it wrong, and maybe some of my uh, student colleagues here listening to this got the same out of it, is that you actually sort of resist this idea that this is necessarily a problematic thing, or necessarily an, a, a domination dominated. Yeah. So the thing, thing is, the thing is, I think I've been, I think this is also one of the central themes I think in a in a course like this is that it's um, I'm still not sure. Uh, and I also I'm also changing my mind every now. It's definitely not so. I I agree completely with Michel Lamont that it's not necessarily and absolutely domination. So it's not so with Hall and with Bourdieu. So that's the point she makes. It's always domination. It's it's a matter mm-hmm. of definition. It's a theoretical. It's mm-hmm. like an axiom of the paradigm that is domination. Um, that seems unlikely to me. Um, so that means then it's a matter of degree and variation and context. So sometimes it's domination, sometimes it isn't. So it becomes an empirical question. Um, in the case of Dutch television comedy, and I think in the case of many of the popular things that we um, that we uh, look at now, it's probably not as much. And this has to do, I think, with the increasing fragmentation. So what I also write in the paper is that lowbrow people, they didn't know it, but at the same time, they they didn't feel very often they were okay with having their own sense of humor and also looked down upon all these elitist people a little bit with their difficult sort of uh, <laughs> unpleasant, unsociable, stern sort of humor where you have to know a lot of things to be able to mm-hmm. laugh about something. So this is, so it's not a, it's not a, 
it's not a hierarchy that that can't be reversed. So there is space there. And also with increasing egalitarianization, it's of course really possible that um, that some forms of elite culture are sort of slipping from their elevated position so that it moves from being a vertical system to sort of things existing side by side with different social yeah. groups. And that's ve- that's very likely, and that seems to also be maybe something that's happening, but that's exactly the theme of next week, where mm-hmm. where we see things changing from, you know, the old nation states that had really, really firm hierarchies to situations that seem a lot less clear because it's all more egalitarian, it's more globalized, um, it seems more omnivorous. So people also, highbrow people, you know, they will go to very popular music concerts. They will consume all different sorts of culture. Um, So it's becoming less clear and less rigid than it was in the days when Hall and Bourdieu did their work. And that also means that, uh, well, first of all, the meaning of culture isn't exactly clear. So you can like the same thing for different reasons. So then you can't really pin a taste on a specific social position. Um, this is also related to the coding, right? So yeah. some things can be heavily go- overcoded. Yeah. So there's you can draw many, you can yes. encode it in various ways yeah. or decode it in various ways. Yeah. Yeah. So there is so okay. this is, and it's also so the taste and the people are not as clearly related. So that's one of the things. And the other, so the the societal hierarchies are not as clear as they used to be, mm-hmm. uh, because of globalization, because of democratization, because of media fragmentation. Uh, so the structures of societies are not the sort of ne- really nice and clear you know, images that Bourdieu drew of France in the early 1970s. Uh, and that means also that that the situa- that, that culture, the, the role of culture is clearly there and possibly stronger, but not as easily interpretable as it used to be. So theoretically, we have to be more open to deal with this sort of yeah more yeah. Uh, messy situation, and also yeah. also I think theoretically it makes no sense to just assume that every culture is always domination, and I agree with Lamont also that this is first of all it's an untenable axiom. It also has a very very strange nasty uh, image of humanity that's underlying it in the sense that as she says it means that people are always maximizers so you don't really like something because you like it but you like something because you want to feel better than others so it's it, quite cynical yeah it's a way. very cynical and it tends to tends to flatten sort of the image of what people do and people's motivation to a sort of cynical strategic understanding of you know i just read this book because i want to feel better than people who haven't read this book and this is, yeah. it's not probably not true. It's also empirically they, probably not true. And then you got this sort of a suspicious thing. Well, you say it's not true, but I'm a sociologist. I know better. I know why you read yeah. this book, even you, though you tell me something different. And that's... Um, and then you put, yeah, you put yourself in a very complicated position as sociologist. It's also something I think next week we talk about when we discuss this Norwegian uh, yeah. case. Vegard Jarnes. Exactly. yeah. Yes. Be- then we also talk about culture as means to an end and culture as an end in itself. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's for next week. <laughs> that, that's for next week. So, then, so we're now close to the wrapping up. So two yeah. very, very uh, quick notes on the assignments that come with this meeting. So the setup of the podcast is also that this can be used as a sort of a standalone course. 
So that means that each episode comes with assignments that you can do with groups either in class or outside of class in a hybrid situation. So we have two assignments. One is actually more a theoretical exercise, looking at the concepts that the different authors use and see how they are related to culture and inequality. Uh, So these assignments can be found in the syllabus and also on the website. The other uh, assignment is very close to the exercise that Luke did at the beginning, uh, where you are asked to think about your own social position and experiences of feeling excluded on the basis of culture and excluding others on the basis of culture. So this is, so we did this and these are both, so one is more empirical and one is more theoretical, so ways to uh, get to deal with it because especially reading Bourdieu can be very difficult. So that brings us to the (laughs) almost end, I think, of this. Uh, So this was the first episode of the Culture and Equality podcast. So this was me, Giselinde Kuybers, talking to Luc Brons, who is a PhD candidate at KU Leuven. So Luc, what would you say is the main takeaway point for you from this episode? Uh, For me, the the main takeaway is that things that may seem frivolous aren't actually quite frivolous, but quite serious and have serious consequences uh, in the structure of our society, I think. Yes, well, I'm happy to hear that, of course. I think for me, (laughs) the main takeaway from this is that if you look at these sort of nice cultural frivolous things like TV and uh, uh, talking about sports, as American men like to do, uh, we really find ourselves at the heart of sociology. Uh, Because I think one of the big insights of sociology is that societies are always unequal and that these inequalities are are always socially shaped. They're not naturally given. uh, They're not the result of intelligence. They're not the result of some people somehow being better than others. But this really is something that society makes. So the moment you're born, you start into a trajectory of being more or less advantaged. Uh, And by looking at culture, in my experience, it's one of the ways to see how this happens. Because once you really, really start to think about inequality, it's really baffling. It's really odd. I mean, babies are all the same. And then one year onwards, the inequalities in every respect are already enormous. And much of this happens through, through culture, through these sorts of things that you learn as part of your family and the society that you're part of and your social position there. So for me, this is really, it's one of the central puzzles of society and they're one of the central sort of tasks of sociology to understand this because it's about how how people become unequal. So the final thing that I would like to ask you, and this is how we will try to end all these podcasts, is what was most surprising about the readings? So, Luke, what was most surprising about the readings for you? Oh, ooh, the most surprising about the readings, definitely the thing I alluded to earlier, that ha- how much has changed in 30 years in America when you're reading Le Monde. Uh, that it's difficult to imagine a United States that's not divided by boundaries. Uh, it, it's divided so much that people rather talk about the divided states than the United States. So this was surprising to me, how much things have changed. Um, but also the uh, another thing that really surprised me is 
how much you can deduce from television. So that, uh, th- this is from Hall mostly, like how many layers of messages there can be encoded into television uh, expressions. So that was the most surprising to me. In, in, in that way that sometimes I watch Netflix shows with my with my uh, better half and um, with my significant other and sh- like we appreciate things, many of the same things, but sometimes also very different things in the same show. And this alludes to these different messages that are in there and also reflect on the different backgrounds we both have. So that's very, that was also quite surprising to me. So, so what was most surprising to me, also seeing um, the documentary on Bourdieu again after uh, 20 odd years, is um, indeed also how much has changed. So how different the world has become, so more globalized and the uh, more fragmented even than at that time. Uh, but also I think what really made me rethink, because I know this literature quite well, is indeed how striking it is that in the end, many people who study culture and equality do turn to activism. And how at some point, I think that's interesting for me also, because for a long time I've identified myself really as an academic, purely under you know, investigating these things because I think they're interesting to me and it's fascinating, but seeing that that apparently it's much more difficult than you think to keep studying this and that at some point think that you have to you know do something or make a stance or intervene or do something Hmm. political and i think that's Mm -hmm. interesting because it has never i've i've never felt that before and i think it's also interesting because it tells you about the possibilities and limitations of you know thinking about societal injustices and analyzing them and then just leaving it at that Hmm. Yes. I think that's a good, it's a good way to end, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, just for the next podcast, we alluded to this already. Uh, we will continue the discussion of culture and inequality, specifically how this has changed and how it has become more maybe fluid or fragmented or less clear over the past decades, while at the same time inequalities have been rising. So this, I think this is the central issue of next week, so inequality has actually become much more pronounced since Bourdieu and Hall write their first work at the same time. It's much more difficult to find out how it's related to culture because culture has become this fragmented, globalized, fluid, uh, unhierarchical thing. So that's the puzzle and the question for next year. So now, thank you, Luke. It was very nice to have you around. Thank you, Selinda. And, um, thank you. I hope to... Uh, to return to this audience and that you will keep following our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.